Amen. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together as a church body to claim that truth, Lord. To claim the promise of knowing that because of you, because of what you've done, Jesus, on the cross and the way that you've redeemed us and helped us cross over, brought us from death to life, it is well with our souls. And God, I pray that we would proclaim this wherever we might be today. Some of us might be in the midst of a great trial, a period of, of temptation, a period of difficulty, Lord, a, a time where we just feel like the world and the enemy is pressing against us. And God, it's in this moment that our, our crying out to you that it is well, our faith in believing that it is well because you hold us in your hand. That is the truth we want to cling to. For others of us, it's a period of testing. Our character is being put on the line, our integrity, our faith. Lord, in the midst of it, Lord, it is well because you hold us in your hands. And God, for others of us, this is just a good time, and we're grateful and we're thankful. And we proclaim to you as well, it is well with our soul, not because everything's easy, but because, again, you are the God who holds us in your hands. Thank you that we can accomplish nothing apart from you, God. That's such a crazy truth to be able to embrace and get a hold of, Lord. But there is nothing of any eternal value, nothing of any lasting value that we can see happen in our lives apart from you. We need you, Jesus. And because of our desperate need for you, God, we cling to you, Lord. We give you this time. We give you this morning. We give you our heart, soul, spirit, our minds. And pray, God, that whatever it is you want to fill our heart, soul, spirit, and mind, you would fill us with today, Lord. We set our hearts and our spirits before you, God. Pray that you would lead us and that we would simply be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning and welcome, saints, to uh, Waken Church. It is good to have you all here. It is summer, in case you guys hadn't noticed. And because it is summer, it is hot, hot, hot. Not as hot as my wife, but still hot, hot, hot. I know, she's so embarrassed. That's so fun. Speaking of hot, we are, uh, as a church, in the midst of an interesting series that we've entitled, What the Bible Doesn't Say. And if you haven't been with us over the course of the past few weeks, you might be wondering why we're spending our summer in a series entitled, What the Bible Doesn't Say, because there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't say. But this series in particular is centered around cultural sayings that people tend to attribute to God but don't really come from God. In other words, God didn't say them. But there are people who think that he did. And that's the problem. And these aren't bad sayings. That's kind of what makes all this tricky. It's not like these sayings don't have any truth to them at all. We're not saying that you should never use these sayings or never speak them again. We're simply saying that whenever we take man's words and put them into God's mouth, we cross a line, and we're playing with a line, and we're flirting with a line that should never be played with. It's dangerous. And so that's what this series has been all about. 
to talk about, to spend some time unwrapping and unmasking and unveiling those, the uh, untangling, maybe is a better word to use, those cultural sayings that we have that can oftentimes get attributed to God but don't really come from his mouth. And so over the course of the past three weeks, we spent our time talking about how God helps those who help themselves. God works in mysterious ways, and then last week, the devil made me do it. And with each one of these teachings, when we've taken the time to just unwrap them and untangle them, what we've done is be able to see that there is a subtle lie in the midst of each of them, a lie about the nature of God, something that they say or imply about the nature of God that is not true. God's help is not dependent upon how much work we put in. God is not necessarily God of mysteries. He's the revealer of them, not the creator of them. And the devil can't make Christians do anything. And so this week, we're going to take a dive into another saying that's actually a bit more common in the past than it is today. But that's actually kind of the point, and it's why we're going to go through it today. And it's the uh, idea that money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. And as we've done with all the other teachings, this is an awakened Q&A teaching, which means that if there are any questions, comments, or thoughts during the course of my time sharing with you, feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. And at the end of our time, we'll try and tackle them, uh, as many of them as we can. And, and speaking of awakened q and I want to apologize for last week. I did not handle my time very well last week, and so kind of ran into the end without a lot of room to tackle them. I left a lot of you guys hanging, and I wanted to apologize for that. We'll make sure not to do that again today. So with that, let's dive in. But first, before we dive in, I want to share with you a few riddles. Don't yell them out loud. Just kind of raise your hand if you know them, and then we'll go through them really quick. So the first one is this. Get your riddle hats on. What is a face, two hands, but no arms or legs? Do you want to know? Okay, go ahead. Say it out. It's a clock. clock. Good job. All right. What letter of the alphabet has the most water? What letter of the alphabet has the most water? You ready? I heard someone yell it out. Who's that? You're lucky I can't see you very well. It's C, right? C, good job. And then last one, which month has 28 days? You guys know? They all have 28 days. Good job. One more question, and this one's not a riddle, but one more question. What do you call a riddle that everyone knows the answer to? Worthless. What'd you say? <laughs> Lame and worthless. That is what today's saying is all about. Money is the root of all evil. And the reason why I say that is because everybody knows, just about everybody knows, that phrase doesn't come from the Bible. It's been misquoted so many times that you kind of look silly if you don't even know that it's a misquote. It's been misquoted so many times that almost nobody misquotes it anymore. And if you do, you'll probably get laughed at. But that's exactly why I want to spend some time tackling this one in particular. It's actually a misquote from something God actually does said, said, say, say, said, found in the book of First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. And it says, for the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's not money that is at the root of all evil. It's the love of money, our craving for money. And even then, it's not that our love of money is at the root of all evil, but at the root of all different kinds of evil. That's how the verse goes. And then it's followed by an equally profound idea that some, in their appetite for money, in their desire and craving for it, turn away from God and inflict upon themselves great sorrow. I know what this feels like. Uh, I can get a bit obsessive about money at times, not going to lie. I spend about four or five times a week going through Mint and checking up on all of our accounts. I know the anxiety and the pressure it feels and you come towards the, the beginning of the month and realize, man, we're going to have to stretch just a little bit to make sure we pay our bills and waiting for the next paycheck to come in. I know that I've, I've read, uh, I know what it's like to just kind of think about it all the time. I, I read articles on a regular basis about finances, personal finance, even retirement, and I'm only three years old, you know? So it's <laughs> one of those things that kind of get, can get a little bit obsessive about. With all that said, uh, if I'm to be honest about the way I examine myself, it's, I don't know if it's really that I love money, because um, honestly, growing up, it was never a huge worry or concern for me. But it's, I love the freedom that money gives, right? It's the idea that the freedom of being able to do what I want, to be able to get what I need for our family or get what our family wants and not have to worry that it's, the money's not going to be there. And yet it's right there at that desire that this verse, this passage comes into play for me. Because it's, at that money that I, it's, it's in that moment that I realize that however I might justify it, whether it's I love money or I just love the freedom that money provides, the fact of the matter is my sense of peace, my anxiety and my worry, my, even, even my vision of what our future is going to look like is wrapped up in money rather than in my relationship with God. And that is the problem. That's something that most of us in here can relate to, is it not? That we can tend to find our sense of security and our sense of well-being in the size of our bank account. And so if we have a lot of money, or I'm sorry, if all of our bills are paid and everyone around us is taken care of and fine, then our sense of well-being is good. We tend to feel good and secure. On the other hand, if we're in a lot of debt, and we're stretching it to make our bills, or maybe not even sure if we can make our bills, then our well-being is that we're not at a state of peace. We're worried. We're anxious. And our, the idea behind that, as subtle as it may be, what it says about us is that if in some way, shape, or form, our sense of well-being is tied to the condition of our bank accounts, then that says something about us, does it not? The love of money is the seed that leads us into all different types of evil. And in craving money, we can tend to wander away from God and in so doing, inflict harm upon ourselves. That is what this passage is saying, and it is so true. God knows us so well, does he not? 
which actually brings us to the story that I want to share with you all today. A story that's found in the Gospels. It's actually found in three of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the three Gospels. And it's a story that most of you, if you've read the Gospels, are going to be somewhat familiar with. It's a story about a wealthy young man who approaches Jesus. And it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we can't read from all three, so we're just going to tackle the, uh, that story from the book of Mark today. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we don't know much about this man except for three things. Uh, one, that he's a younger man. That's actually from the Gospel of Matthew, shares that. Uh, he's wealthy. He owns a number of different possessions, which all three Gospels share. And finally, he was a religious leader. He was a ruler with authority over others. That's what Luke tells us in his version of the story. And yet, despite being respected and despite having authority, despite being young and despite being wealthy, this man had determined that there is something missing in my life. Because it seems on the face of it, he's got it all, right? He's young, in the prime of his life. He's got plenty of money and possessions and things. And he's in a position of authority and well-respected. And yet he understands that there is something lacking. And then he's heard this story about this rabbi, this teacher who's been wandering around. name is Jesus. And not only has he been wandering around teaching some crazy ideas and crazy things about the kingdom of God, but he's been performing miracles as well, authenticating his authority and power. And so this young man goes out to seek him out, to find him, and to ask him the question that is most pressing upon his heart. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, I've got prestige, I've got money, I've got my health, and yet I still understand that there is something missing. And Jesus, you're talking about, when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about true riches. Not riches that can be measured in coins and bills, but the type of riches that has to do with what it looks like to live as a part of God's kingdom. It has to do with the quality of life that we can experience in our relationship with God. And he's saying, that's the type of life I want. This is an impressive young man, is it not? How many young men in his position would have that approach? He asks the right question to the right person in the right way. On his knees, before Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. That's weird. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your mother and father. That is a fascinating response. First, Jesus dives into this idea, and that's because the young man called him good teacher. He dives into this idea that only God is truly good. It's almost like the implication Jesus is making is, you know, there's good, and then there's good. When you talk about good, it's kind of like the painting of a sky compared to the actual sky itself. The two don't really compare. That when you're talking about good, you're probably talking about the good that we associate with one another. 
like good person, but God, God's goodness is beyond comparison. And there's a reason why that's important, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. Secondly, Jesus reminds him of the commandments. But you notice something interesting? He doesn't remind him of all ten commandments, just the last six. In fact, the ones Jesus focuses on are the six commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor and not the commandments that have to do with loving God. That's kind of interesting as well, is it not? And so based on these commands about how to love your neighbor, how have you done And the young man responds, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. We don't know if that's actually true, but it's likely. Here's the good young man who hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't stolen anything. Uh, He hasn't given false witness. He hasn't uh, committed adultery. Uh, He hasn't cheated. And for the most part, or maybe completely, he's honored his parents. That's the standard that he's going by. And he says, by that standard, I have kept all of these commandments. I am a good person. Which is really interesting because we do the same thing, don't we? For those of us who have gone out and shared the gospel or talked to people, we don't usually go up to someone and say, hey, are you a good person? But we do when we go through the gospel. And it's funny because when you go through that, oftentimes what is, what is people's response? Well, yeah, I think I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't stolen anything. Wait, we do the same thing. Our measure of being a good person or not is based on what we haven't done. And Jesus calls him out on it. So this young man sees himself as being a good person. And beyond that, he's probably seen by those around him and those who know him as being a good person, the little g good person as well. And this is why Jesus responds. He says, looking at this man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Right? I get it, young man. You're trying. And I appreciate your heart says, there's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. You know, for the longest time, whenever I would read this story and read this passage, I would think, Lord, that's really kind of an unfair test to ask this young man to give everything. And because what I do, and I don't know if you guys do as well, but oftentimes when I'm reading the passage, I'm reading stories like this, I try and put myself in that spot. And I'm like, Jesus, if you'd asked me to do the same thing, right, that lay down, go sell all that you have, and then give it to the poor and come and follow me, that'd be tough to do at the drop of a hat. And I wonder how many of you would respond in the same way. And I'm willing to bet that if your reaction is anything like mine, you probably wouldn't walk away because you know that that's not a very Christian thing to do, to walk away from Jesus. That would be bad. But you would probably start rationalizing. You'd probably start making excuses. You'd probably start asking questions and negotiating. Wait, 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 Jesus. Okay, I'm willing to do this, okay, but what do you mean by following you? Like, I just want to be clear before I go ahead and sell everything, right? Or, or when you say sell everything, do you literally mean everything right now? And God, if that's what you want me to do, can you explain to me why? Because there has to be a purpose. I'm willing to do it, Jesus. I'll sell everything. Just, I just need to be clear on why that's the case. Right? We would negotiate with Jesus. This young man was at least honest enough to say, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. And he walks away. 
But all that rationalization, whether you walk away or you rationalize or negotiate, it, I don't want us to miss what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is cleverly calling this rich young man to make a choice that's going to reveal what is truly important to him. Because remember, he's kept the commandments. He's a good young man who desires to understand the kingdom better and desires this eternal life. He's well-respected. And Jesus asks him a question that will put all of that on the line. Does he love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? And does he truly love his neighbor as himself? Surrendering his wealth and giving it to the poor would answer that question, would it not? It would definitively say, yes, I will put God first, and I'll put my neighbor's needs first by selling all that I have. If he chooses not to, it would also definitively answer the question, would it not? No, I am trusting in my riches more than I'm trusting in God. And no, I don't love my neighbors enough to give them all. Either way, whatever choice he makes, whatever is in the man's heart will be brought to light. And you want to understand, too, you got to understand, brought to light not for Jesus' sake. Jesus already knows. But for the rich young man to know. And he makes his choice. That's what this story is about. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and asked his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, I wonder what Jesus' intent looked like. Right? Sean Spencer. Anyway, um, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. So Jesus had forced this young man into a choice. Will you trust Jesus or God, right, to meet all of your needs, or were you going to trust in your own goodness and your own wealth? Do you value eternal life more than what you currently have? Those were the choices this young man had to make in an instant. And he chose to walk away. And that, and the reason why it is so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God is because it's money that forces this choice on people. It is Money, even today, money forces that same choice onto us, does it not? We are the rich young rulers. Compared to the rest of the world, we are far and away rich young rulers. And we too must choose. The wealth that we have forces us to choose. In October of uh, 1781, at the height of the Revolutionary War, Lord Cornwallis was general of the British Army, and he had marched his troops into Yorktown, Virginia. Thomas Nelson Jr. at the time was the governor of Virginia, and Yorktown was his hometown. 
That's where he grew up. And for years, Thomas and his father and many of his countrymen had been gathering food and supplies for the Continental Army and even raised up militias uh, to fight for the Continental Army. And now Governor Nelson found that his hometown was being occupied by the hated British Army. Well, with the help of the French Navy and American troops, they actually locked Cornwallis and his army and trapped them in Yorktown. And when the French general looked over at the governor about, and asked him where we should fire our guns next, Thomas Nelson Jr. pointed to this large brick home, which was the most beautiful building left standing in the city of Yorktown, and said, that is probably where Lord Cornwallis is staying and keeping his headquarters at. We should bomb that first. And then he turned around and looked at his gunners and offered a five-guinea reward to anyone who could hit that brick home. That beautiful brick house, which was actually Thomas Nelson's own home, was then hit at least six times with cannon fire. I appreciate that story because I appreciate men like Thomas Nelson who understands that there are some causes that are worth sacrificing possessions, worth sacrificing wealth, home, and fortune for. And when the time came, he made the choices, he made the sacrifices necessary for the cause of freedom. But you're fooling yourself if you think it was a spontaneous decision that came out of nowhere. It wasn't. Thomas Nelson had made those types of sacrifices on a smaller scale for years already. And so by the time it came to this idea of destroying his precious home and everything in it and all of his possessions, it was a no-brainer. He'd already made the decisions because of all the smaller decisions he had made before that one. And that same truth applies to us today. We may not, over the course of our lives, be confronted in the way that this rich young ruler was confronted with Jesus saying that I want you to go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. But we are making a lot of small decisions every single day that will actually determine what that big decision will be someday. And I'm going to tell you something about the truth of our lives is you can't make all the wrong small decisions come to the big one and assume you're going to make the right big decision. That just doesn't happen. Your big decision is oftentimes already decided by the little, the small ones you make every single day. And that's true of how we approach money as well. And that's why this idea is so important, right? This idea of money being the root of all evil. That, it had, that the idea of money being the root of all evil has such a tight grip on all of our lives, even today, which is crazy because we all know that it's not true. Money isn't the root of all evil, but it is a master. And as a master, it has the ability to own us, is the capacity to own us, and that is why money is so subversively Dangerous. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus shares this plainly when he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. 
That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Jesus says it frankly in this passage here, does he not? You cannot love money and still serve God. The two are mutually incompatible. These two ideas are incompatible because no one can serve two masters. But wait, he's not done. He continues and says, this truth that you can't serve two masters, that you can't serve God and still be enslaved to money, that truth is why I'm telling you not to worry about your everyday life. Will I have enough food? Will I have enough drink? Will I have enough clothes? Because if God is your master, then you have no reason to worry. Your worry is a reflection of who your master is. The fear you have about not having enough, your anxiety about being in debt, the stress you put yourself under when you feel like you don't have enough money. Do you really believe that that fear, anxiety, and stress comes from our relationship with God and being part of his family? No. Your fear, anxiety, and stress comes from you still putting your trust and your hope in money, things, esteem. Better yet, your constant fear, anxiety, and stress about not having enough reveals that money is in some way still your master. In the book of Hebrews, the author shares, Hebrews 13, 5, don't love money. What's the counter? How do you not love money? Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Be satisfied with what you have. God's with you. He knows what you need. And don't forget, too, that money can be your master, whether you have a little bit of it or a lot of it. It can be your master whether you're a hoarder or a spender whether you're frugal or generous. Because the key to whether or not money is your master is not how much or how little you have, but how much you love it. If you're a money lover, then that desire will lead you into all different kinds of evil. And God wants to set you free from those things, from those evils, and also from your worry, your fear, and your anxiety and stress. But what it will require of you is the same thing that Jesus required of this rich, young ruler, to be free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. If this is an area of struggle for you, I'd encourage you to write those verses down and pin them up somewhere where you'll see them every day. Your bathroom, window, mirror, window, mirror, mirror. It'd be awkward to have a window in your bathroom. So... Anyway, I need to wrap up. And before I do, as I do so, if there are any questions, comments, or thoughts that you have, 
regarding what I've shared today, go ahead and text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. I've left a good bit of time this week, so let's see what happens as a result. And as you're doing that, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis um, that comes from his book, uh, Mere Christianity. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes about Christ. Christ says, give me all. I don't want a certain amount of your time, or a certain amount of your money, and a certain amount of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Amen? All right. Back with some Q&A. Bless you. All right. While money is a good thing and brings freedom, as you've mentioned, how do you balance getting money to get what you want? And Sorry, Lord. Let's go to another question. I'm just kidding. Although if it happens again, I might really switch. So anyway... While money is a good thing and brings freedom, as you mentioned, how do you balance getting money to get what you want slash need and taking time for yourself and to enjoy what you already do have around you? That's a good question. You know, uh, so I'm going to share with you some, one of the things I was wrestling through as I was preparing for this morning. And... Uh, one of the things, the phrase that I was, I was wrestling around and, and bouncing around in my head for a while is this idea. I was going to say that money is neutral. It's what we bring into it that makes money good or bad, uh, master or slave, right? And then I had to step back and say, is that really true? I don't know. And I really don't know for sure. That's why I, haven't, I didn't say it, which kind of ruins the point since I just told you. I've, I've been thinking about it. But anyway, um, I don't know if money truly is neutral, I think money has the capacity to be something that other things don't necessarily have, right? That I think anything in some way, I guess, could be seen as an idol. But, uh, and so to answer your question, right, uh, I think what, the, what, you, what I am assuming you're asking here is money does some good things. It, it offers us freedom, and it's not necessarily wicked in of itself. So how do we balance being able to use it to care for our wants, to care for our need, versus it becoming our master. And, uh, and I think, again, this, this comes down to just about anything that, become, that, can become, that has the potential of becoming an idol, is that we just can't worship it, right? We can't need it or want it or desire it more than we desire, need, and want God. And it shouldn't be a tricky line, right? It should be obvious. In the same way that for me, I'm married to one woman. I love that woman uniquely, wonderfully, amazingly, and there is no other woman that compares. It's not even close. It's not like, oh, well, maybe my daughters. But I mean, so there's no other woman that's even close, right? It's not like, it's like, oh, it's really, really close, but I'm, I know I'm a good husband because I love her just a little bit more than I love these other women, right? That's not the way it works. 
There is no second place. And so I think in the same way with God, that if in our relationship with God, we are confident that God is our first and foremost love and nothing else is even close, then I'd say, don't worry about it. You are free from the love of money. But if it's close, and if it's like, man, I wrestle, and, and they, they bounce back and forth, and sometimes money is, and sometimes God is, then I'd be like, you know what? You need to take a look at your life, because it shouldn't be a close thing at all. And so in that sense, I'd say there is freedom to enjoy the money that God provides for you and is given to you, and to under, but just understand and never forget that we're stewards, not owners. And if you keep that in mind, that we're stewards, that what we have, we have because of God only. And so let's spend it the way God would want us to. Then I think there's a lot of freedom in how that money is used. All right. Does our church command people to tithe? Uh, does our church command people to tithe? No. Um, we don't command you to do a lot of things except what the Bible says, right? Uh, I think that's where we want to be really careful. I think if we understand, so as a pastor, as one of the pastors in this church, here's what I always have to remind myself and understand is I don't have authority on my own. My authority, whatever authority I have, is given to me by the Lord God, right? And in some ways by you, that you guys are saying we'd, we're good with Frank being one of the pastors and shepherds of this church. That is where authority comes from, right? And so when we talk about the issue of tithing, the issue isn't going to be that our church is telling you this is something you have to obey. What we're going to say is you obey whatever God says. We're just kind of unveiling and making that a bit more practical for you guys sometimes because sometimes it can be a bit challenging for us to really get what God is saying or communicating. And so that's okay. But our authority comes from the scriptures and comes from God's word. So in that sense, I say, no, we're not, the church is not commanding you to tithe. That being said, the scriptures do lay out the principle of the tithe and the importance of the tithe, right? To give our first fruits and to understand that our first fruits and the, the 10%, the first tenth of what we'd be given, the reason for the tithe is to say, to declare, God, you are first. And as a practical expression of that, I'm giving you the first fruits of whatever I earn. Because I understand it's not mine, it's yours. That's what tithing does. Tithing is a practical way for us to make sure that money doesn't become our idol or become our God or become our master. And that's why we would say we certainly encourage the tithe because that's important for our lives. But we don't command it um, in that way. So hopefully that tackles that one. Can you define love in contrast to being overly focused or concerned on making ends meet. Can you define love? Oh, gotcha. Loving money, you mean? Can you define loving money in contrast to being overly concerned or focused on making ends meet? So, so it's really interesting. My, uh, our family... Uh, in order to go into full-time ministry, we had to go through a process of support raising um, where we approached different people and asked them to support the ministry that we have. And, and at times it felt like I was begging for money. Other times it felt like, no, God has called us to this. We're just giving people an opportunity to jump on board. Either way, it was a really challenging time. And part of what made that time challenging is we literally knew that our, well our, our financial status was going to be dependent upon God's provision and God's generosity through God's people. And that was a really tough thing, right? And during that time, my wife and I prayed, oh, 
prayed this passage from Proverbs 30 or Proverbs 31, where it says, uh, Lord, two things we ask of you, that uh, you keep us away from deception and lies, that you keep deception and lies far from me, and that you give me neither poverty nor riches, not riches so that it might get um, comfortable and forget you, God, and not poverty that I might steal and just defame your name. And so that was a prayer we prayed, God, that we're not asking for too much, we're not asking for too little. We're just asking, God, that you would give us our portion. And I think if that's our perspective, if our perspective is God gives us the portion we need and we just make use of that in a responsible, godly fashion, then I think we're free from the love of money, right? Then, then applying that money to a house payment, to groceries, to clothes, to whatever the case may be, there's no conflict. The issue is whenever we have a conflict of interest, it comes down to, well, um, who gets to decide what this money is, is for and who gave it to us, right? Is it because, is it the result is the money we have a result of our hard work and the things that we do? If so, then I'd examine, I'd say examine your heart and have a heart check right there. Or is it something we recognize consistently that God is providing for us and we're going to make the best use of it that we can? Then I think there's, then if we're free from the love of money, then I, I do feel like uh, making ends meet uh, is a really broad term. But I think that's what God gives us money for, is to be able to provide for the needs that we have. I don't know if that was really clear. I don't know how else to, to contrast that in a clear way. I think the issue is always going to be understanding who your master is. And I think, that again, the passage I shared earlier is going to be the clearest indicator of that. If I get anxious, worried, and stressed out over money and whether I have enough or not consistently, it is telling me money is my master. I can say whatever I want. My anxiety, worry, and fear reveal that it is. If I'm at peace about the money that we have, then you don't have to worry about it. That's an indicator that you are not being ruled over by money. Man, that is a good question. So you said anxiety and worry shows who your master is. I just did. You're right. So how would you help someone with an anxiety disorder? <laughs> Man, put them on meds and send them back. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, don't. Don't. That is not what I'm saying. Okay, let's distinguish. All right, I'm just going to be real quick on this because I don't want to go on this rambling tangent. There is a difference between the normal anxiety that we face on a day-to-day -day basis that most people face and an anxiety disorder, okay? It's, uh, they're not necessarily the same thing. So that's like saying that every once in a while, you know, I kind of inhale and have a bit of a stuffy nose. There's a difference between that and a full-blown cold and then full-blown pneumonia. You understand that severity matters in some way, shape, or form. So when I'm saying that, I'm not necessarily referring to anxiety disorders. I'm just saying that if we have a normal range, we consistently experience uh, anxiety, worry, and fear tied specifically to the amount of money that we have, that's a pretty good indicator. Anxiety disorder is, is, uh, is not necessarily in that same category, right? Anxiety disorder, I guess, man. It goes a bit farther than that, and the treatment for it is different, right? In the same way that my having just a bit of uh, snot in my nose is not mean I need to start going on meds or antibiotics, but if I had pneumonia, I would. And so the treatment's going to be different based on the symptoms, and that's probably the best way I can answer that one. If you're really stuck on it, though, feel free to grab me after, and we can circle back around. I was just joking about the meds, kind of, sort of, depending on how severe anxiety is.
All right, two more, one more, maybe, and we'll run through this fast. Is it a sin to buy a donut instead of giving money to someone in need? Yes, don't eat donuts. Um, finally, last question. The rich man had possessions, but you're laughing. You can give me the donut. No, I'm kidding. That's uh, That way you're accomplishing both. I'm buying a donut and I'm giving it to the poor. Okay. Uh, the rich man had possessions, but we can be rich in many ways. Family, life, social standing, influence, career, etc. Christ wants us to surrender everything. If we don't, we are relying on ourselves instead of God. That doesn't mean we have to do this exactly like Christ told the rich man, but what are we prepared to do? Great question. Great summary, and I'm assuming your question was rhetorical, so I'm not going to answer it. Amen. So let me uh, pray us out, and then we'll go through some announcements. And I want to thank you guys for um, engaging with this issue and with this topic so well this morning. So I'm grateful for you all, saints, and how many good examples uh, are in this room to be able to look at and follow. Lord, we thank you so much for this time and for this morning and for what an amazingly gracious God you are, that you are a God who has told us that you'll provide for all of our needs. You are the God who tells us that we can look to the sparrows, we can look to the flowers of the field, and to realize that if you are going to take care of things that are small and, and, and not nearly as valuable as we are, how can we not trust that you will take care of us as well? And God, we thank you that you're a gracious God who will provide, and we just pray that as saints, as children of the King, as part of your family, that we would believe that truth, to trust in it, and to live our lives believing that it's true. And Lord, I pray for, us to the, for those of us in this room that are a bit stuck here, uh, that do have a bit of worry, anxiety, or maybe more than a bit, and have tried to shake it and just can't. Um, I pray that you give them mercy and grace, Lord God. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you bring some saints alongside to them uh, to encourage and refresh them. I pray you lead them into places in your word that you can fill their minds with truth instead of the lies that they're believing, God. And that you give them comfort, hope, peace, and a renewed spirit. We love you so much. We thank you, God, for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in your presence, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Before Larry